Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Our speaker, speaker is Professor Richie Gill of Healthcare Engineering at the University of Bath. His research area is bioengineering with a particular interest in orthopaedics. Professor Gill completed a first degree in aerospace engineering <clears throat> and initially worked in the aerospace industry. He developed an interest in bioengineering and undertook a PhD in orthopaedic mechanics. He spent over 20 years working in a mixed clinical stroke research environment and was group head of the Oxford Orthopaedic Engineering Centre from 2001 to 2012 when he moved to the University of Bath. He is currently on the executive committee of the British Orthopaedic Research Society and the European Orthopaedic Research Society and a member of the editorial board of the Bone and Joint Journal. Professor Gill has a background in both experimental and numerical methods. Much of his research has involved modelling of human musculoskeletal system using kinematic and finite element methods. Particular areas of interest are hip and knee joint function, disease initiation and treatment. Your lecturer. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction and good evening, everybody. And I'll try not to bore you. So uh, we're facing quite a challenge as we go forward. Uh, this is a map of the world where the percentage of the population over the age of 60 is shown and the various colours at the top show you the various percentages. And this is data from 2014. And what we can see is that quite a bit of Europe, about 20 to 24% are aged over the age of 60. And the projection is by 2050, these same colours still apply, that the vast majority of um, the West will have aged quite considerably and that ageing will spread across the globe. So the whole population is getting much, much older. And if we look at the Office for National Statistics, what they've done is they've uh, reported on the percentage population 65 years or older, and in 1985 it was about 15%. That's risen slightly to about 18% in 2010. But by 2035, almost 25% of the population will be aged 65 years or older. And just to quote from the report, it's the fastest population increase have been in the oldest old. So the largest group growing demographic that we have are the 85 years plus of age. And by 2035, almost uh, two and a half times larger uh, population of 85 plus than we had in 2010. So 5% of the total UK population will be over the age of 85 years old. Uh, a little while ago, I was catching a train and I saw this newspaper and I took a very quick picture of it. And uh, there are now uh, over 14,000 Britons over the age of 100. And the Queen no longer sends a telegram. And um, the other thing, this is a slightly difficult graph to read, uh, again from the Office of National Statistics. And what it says is that your age in 2013, so if you're born in 2013, this is the probability that you will survive to over 100. So girls who are aged 10 in 2013, over 116,000 of those 
will survive to being over 100 years old. So what this is telling us is that this is something that's not slowing down. So the number of people who are aged over 100 will continue to increase. So the lifetime uh, projections are increasing. And this number 65 is going to cop up a lot in my talk. The other thing that the National Census told us, that if you are in a household and you're under 65, about 90% of us are in good health. As soon as we get 65 and over, that drops to 50% being in good health. And if you're in a community-based care establishment, if you're over 65 years old, the not good health is 84% of those people are not, not in good health. And what we've got here is, again, I apologize, a very, very complex graph, but I just want to point out one thing to you. So this is age uh, along the bottom, and this is basically a measure of disability. Uh, it's years living with disability. And this is from the World Health Organization statistics, and this is a global picture. And then you've got all these burdens of disease creeping up. And as you can see, as you get older, the burden of disease goes up and they're broken down into different categories. I'm interested in musculoskeletal disorders. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to recolor that. And as we're getting older, that's the biggest single burden of disease is musculoskeletal health. Biggest single burden of disease. And if you look at what we spend in terms of the NHS and you break it down by age, what we see is about a quarter of that budget is consumed by the, that percentage of the population which is under the age of 65. And soon as you get over the age of 65, three quarters of the budget is consumed by people who are aged over 65 because they're becoming uh, more unwell. So what I want to do is I want to focus on two musculoskeletal topics. One topic I've been interested in for many years is knee osteoarthritis, and then the other one is hip fracture. And hopefully we'll get through both of them, but uh, I'm going to spend more time on knee osteoarthritis. So osteoarthritis is a degenerative joint disease, and it is predicted as a single disease entity to be the fourth leading cause of global disability by 2020, which doesn't seem that far off now. And if you compare the disability globally in terms of prevalence of cardiac disease and osteoarthritis, uh, the interesting thing is you go and stop people in the street and you say, what's a bigger burden of disease, cardiac disease or osteoarthritis? People will automatically say cardiac disease. That's the cardiac disease global prevalence. This is data from 2004. And the osteoarthritis uh, prevalence is double that. The thing about cardiac disease, it kills you, and it gets people very emotive. Um, and osteoarthritis does kill you, it just kills you very slowly. <laughs> so osteoarthritis, uh, degeneration of joint cartilage and the underlying bones. It's most common from middle age onwards. It causes stiffness and pain, especially in the hip, knee, and thumb joints. But I'm more interested in the knee. So osteoarthritis is the most common musculoskeletal disease in the world. In 2010, Arthritis Research UK did a survey. And they, these figures date from 2010. And that's 10 million people in the UK who have osteoarthritis and it's the biggest cause of pain and disability in the UK. 
And in 2010, the NHS was spending £5 billion a year treating it, and it led to nearly 8 million days, working days lost, basically because of osteoarthritis. And one of the things is that we sometimes take our, take our knee joints for granted. The mammalian knee joint is very complex structure. And we're in a very select bunch of mammals. There are very few mammals who can fully straighten the knee. In fact, there are three. Anybody has it to have a guess? Who can straighten the knee? <laughs> yes. Homo sapien. Yes. That's one. Sorry? No. No. No, no, sorry. Anybody else? No. Elephant. Yes, elephant. Elephant can straighten the knee, and it's the bear. So bear, elephant, and man. Uh, so straight knee, straight knee, and we have uh, a very straight knee. So in terms of functional activity, we underestimate how important our knees are in functional activity. We do something very odd in the animal world. We walk on two legs. And I'm walking on two legs now, and this, this is actually data from uh, the Gate Lab, actually the Gate Lab in Oxford. And this is a real person walking. And what I want you to concentrate on is not this leg, but it's this leg. And in order to be able to walk, you have to be able to bend your leg to about 70 degrees uh, to be able to clear the ground properly. And if anybody's had a stiff knee, walking becomes very, very difficult. And um, the other thing that sometimes comes as a surprise to people, all of us are just about able to do the simple act of standing out of a chair. Even the young, healthy ones. We're just about strong enough to do that. And there's a limit on the size that we can reach in our particular in the, in the, the niche that we fit. And we're just about at the size where we are agile enough. Um, but we're just about strong enough to get up out of a chair. And it seems ridiculous, but uh, maybe I can demonstrate that later on. And, but having knee function is really, really important. So. We talked about ageing and the fact that as you age, you get more prevalence of disease. And so this is the European prevalence of knee osteoarthritis per 100,000 of the population. And this is the age uh, along the bottom, going from zero up to more than 80. And so for men, as you start to age, uh, the prevalence of knee osteoarthritis increases. So you get about 20% of men over the age of 40, over the age, age of 80, sorry, who got osteoarthritis. And I'm sorry for you women, it's much worse. Uh, really sorry about that, but that's the situation. And so what we end up with, if we take the population aged over 45 years, so we have about 14% of the males have got osteoarthritis, and a quarter, almost a quarter of the women have osteoarthritis. And this is driving the increasing demand for knee replacement. We're quite lucky in the UK, we have the National Joint Registry, which tracks um, the usage of hip and knee implants throughout the country. And in 2014, we implanted almost 100,000 knee implants in 2014. And I've broken this down into total knee replacement and unicompartmental knee replacement. And about 10% are unicompartmental knee replacement. The projection is, by 2030, that will have doubled. 
So we're looking at trying to have to provide 200,000 knee replacements. And we can't do it. Uh, we are not geared up to do this. So there, there is a serious problem. The other thing to point out is a third of those patients are less than the age of 65 years old. And one thing that happens with knee replacement, if you're young, and less than 65 is young in these terms, you have a higher failure rate. So not only is the primary um, replacement predicted to increase, the revision, a redo operation, that operation rate is predicted to increase by over 300%. And these are much more complicated and expensive operations to do. So the other problem that we have is that hip replacements do really quite well. This is again data from the National Joint Registry. And what you see is people who've had a hip replacement, the vast majority of them are much better. There's a few of them who are a little bit better, very few who are about the same, and there's some that are a bit worse. When you ask the same question to knee replacement patients, you see that quite a lot are much better, but there's quite a few who are about the same or they're worse. And we don't really understand particularly well why some people are worse. So pain after knee replacement is quite common. And that's not surprising. It's a major physiological insult. And lots of patients, part of the process of, uh, of being counseled for knee replacement is being told that you're probably going to have a period where you've got quite significant pain. And you, know, you can see, uh, now, now the internet has arrived, you can explain to people how bad your pain was. And this is a quote from a patient, horrible pain, pain medicines turn me irritable, longest and worst pain I've ever gone through. She did get, she did get better, that's all. But some patients have persistent pain, and it's quite difficult now to predict which patients will have persistent pain. And we definitely need more research and more funding into what causes the pain. Surprising thing is we don't really know where the pain comes from in uh, osteoarthritis. And the other thing is that looking at that expectation, what we have is the kind of operation that's just given to everybody. But people are different and people have different expectations. And with lots of people, the expectations that they had for their knee surgery are not often met. And that's why you have this lot of dissatisfaction. But part of this is a growing realisation that there isn't a one-size-fits-all treatment. And we are trying to work, walk towards uh, a world where there are personalised treatments. So if you imagine this rugby player and this lady who's trying to keep fit, if they've done something to their knees, you wouldn't think the same thing that would work for him would work for her, or vice versa. So we do need to be a bit more thinking about our personalised treatments. I was talking to you a little bit about the effect of age at operation. Now, it's very cold in Sweden, so they love to get indoors and look at data all day long. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're obsessed with it, the Swedes. You can see a Swede just doing calculations for the hell of it sometimes. And they have the longest-running registry, knee arthroplasty registry, in the world. Um, it was uh, the 40-year uh, report came out in 2015. But they capture every single patient who has an operation. 
And most Swedish people stay in Sweden. They don't tend to sort of wander off. So they've got very good follow-up. So what I wanted to do is just show you, this is the years after the, uh, after the first operation, and this is the failure rate. So if we take the eight-year data point and we go up, we see that if you are 75 years or older when you have your knee replacement, the eight-year failure rate is quite low. It's about 6%, 6 or 7%. If you are aged between 65 and 74, that goes up a bit. But if you are less than the age of 65, that dramatically increases the failure rate. So younger people are at higher risk of having to have a revision earlier. And it's because age is quite a good surrogate for activity. So when we look at uh, that data in a slightly different way, if you're less than the age of 65, for a unicompartmental knee replacement, the 10-year failure rate is about 20%. And that drops off as you get older. So when you're 75 plus, that can be about 6% versus 20%. So that's a big difference in that. So one of the things that we would like to try and do is delay people having knee replacement surgery. But you need some way to deal with the pain. And what's the reason for this is because the forces during activity are really, really high. This is some information from some outstanding work done by um, researchers in Berlin, especially read, led by Georg Bergman. And what they've been able to do is develop knee replacements which have sensors inside and they measure the forces inside your knee as you're doing activities. And so what they've been able to do is plot this data for walking and for jogging. So just to say a 13 stone man, that's the average weight of uh, a man in the UK, is 84 <coughs> kilograms, that's about 800 newtons. So if we have a look here, these are the sort of high forces that they've measured during walking. So when you're walking, just doing the simple act of walking, you can have forces about 3,000 newtons. That's four times body weight. And if you're jogging, that can go up even higher. So 5,000 newtons, about six times body weight, just acting on your knee when you're doing something like jogging. So that's one of the reasons if you're younger, you can wear out your knee replacement quicker. So just to put it in pictorial sense, here's your tibia and fibula, the bottom half of your leg. So just imagine when you're walking, you've got four of these chaps standing on your knee. Okay, so That's a lot of weight. Uh, this um, actually represents the average body form of an American, uh, which is getting close to what we're becoming like. <laughs> okay. And when you look at the reasons for revision, so this again, this is data from the Swedish knee arthroplasty um, register. What you see is that infection represents about over 20% reason for revision. And the other ones, the other main reasons are wear and loosening. Infection is a disaster. It really is a massive problem. And this is another thing that we're very, very concerned about is the end of life of antibiotics. So we're running out of antibiotics. But most people think that if you have an infection, it could be treated and it would be resolved. 
The sad fact is almost a quarter of infections never get resolved. And it's, it's an absolute horrible situation for the patient. So when we look at the average cost of knee replacement, the primary replacement, the average price is about £6,500 uh, is the average tariff value. A revision can go up to about £10,000. But if you have an infection and you have to be revised for an infection, an infected revision <coughs> is about £30,000 because of all the additional hospital stay that's involved and the work that has to be done to try and clear that infection. Just taking the primary replacement cost, I told you that we had 97,000 knee replacements. So we spend in the order of 600 million a year putting knee replacements into patients. And by 2050, it's going to double. That's going to be a big cost. And the effect of failure on knee replacement is quite dramatic. So this is a patient who needs to have a revision. And what you can see is that all the bone has gone away. It's got lost. It's eroded. That's the process of osteolysis. The bearing surface in here is made of polyethylene. And little bits of polyethylene trigger this osteolytic process. It triggers the removal of bone. So you can see the next knee replacement is going to be much more complicated because there isn't that much bone to put the knee replacement into. So one of the things that we're really quite concerned with is lots of young people going for knee replacement because they don't have viable alternatives for solving their problems are creating future problems. So you could have your primary knee replacement and you might have a first revision. So you've been young and active and you've worn out your first knee. You can have a first revision. I showed you that picture of all that bone loss. The second revision is going to be much more difficult. And that second revision and the first revision have a greater infection risk. But then your options become limited. And one of the things that people are not really aware of is that if you try to have your knee replacement too early, you run the risk of having to have a fusion or an amputation because there aren't any options after that, because you haven't got the bone stock. So if we look at the data again for the National Joint Registry, we see that the revision rate is increasing, and there were listed 21 fusions and six amputations in the registry, and those numbers are just increasing. And the other problem with knee replacement at the moment, it's only suitable for a small proportion of people with knee osteoarthritis. So, Knee osteoarthritis is staged according to how your x-ray looks. So if you look on this side, the bones don't meet because there's cartilage in between. And that cartilage looks fairly healthy. You see here, the cartilage has been eroded and you get lack of joint space. So here you've got quite severe disease. So what's used is what's commonly used is a Kelgren-Lawrence scale. It's an x-ray based grading system. So what you have is grade zero, you're perfectly fine. You have grade one, a little bit of joint narrowing. Grade two, you have these things called osteophytes. Grade three, you've got multiple osteophytes and definite joint narrowing. And grade four is severe. So you've got marked narrowing and you've got bony deformity. So when it comes to making a decision about giving somebody a knee replacement, if you've got time here and if you're healthy over there, and you have end stage, which is grade four, 
on that scale. In between, you can have a great deal of pain and disability, but you're not at that end stage. There's a very poor relationship between the symptoms and x-ray appearance, and it's well understood that radiographic grading is an imprecise guide to disability. But one of the other things that here, age seems to be related to, the age at which you have this disability is related to uh, obesity. It does appear that more obese patients will get pain sooner. And we know from painful experience that joint replacement is not effective in these stages because we're not 100% sure that the pain's coming from the knee. So it's only really at end stage that you can have a knee replacement. So what we end up having is a lot of people who've got pain and disability, but they're not at this end stage. And a recent, well, relatively recent study showed that there are about 30 million people in the USA who are at this gap. They've got the pain and disability, but they're not got sufficiently bad arthritis to have a knee replacement. So you can, some people can spend 20 years, and it's called the treatment gap. And we do need more effective therapies for this. So there's a societal burden of untreated symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. And a number of studies have been done trying to put a figure on that. One of the best studies is this one that came out of the Netherlands. And they estimated about £8,000 per year per person. And the vast majority of that is due to loss of productivity. We know 14% of the UK population who are working, between 40 and 65, have knee osteoarthritis, which is not severe enough to warrant a knee replacement. So that's 2.9 million people. And the annual cost is about 24 billion to the UK economy. So that 67 million pounds a day is lost in productivity because of untreated osteoarthritis of the knee. So what are we trying to do here? Uh, what I'm trying to do with my group, we're trying to get more viable alternatives to knee replacement. We're also trying to understand pain in osteoarthritis. And together with some colleagues over in the Department for Health, we're trying to develop novel therapies for pain management. And a colleague of mine in the Department of Health is also looking at ways of improving activity in retirement. A proven alternative to knee replacement is high tibial osteotomy. And we have a large literature showing that this is an effective treatment. And the NHS tariff is about £2,400 for this. This is what the NHS hospital would get paid for doing it. But it costs quite a bit more to do the operation, so there's a deficit. And so there's not much appetite for doing it. If I just take you through this. So here is the femur, here's the tibia, there's the knee joint, the hip joint and the ankle. And in a normal leg, these will all be aligned. And as you start to get early disease, you get a malaligned limb. And typically, it would be malaligned in this way, bow-legged, which means increased pressure on the inside of the knee. And you have osteoarthritis starting in that part. In a high tibial osteotomy, what you're trying to do is correct that uh, mal malformation. And you need to use a lot of x-ray. There's all these very delicate structures that you want to avoid cutting at the back of the knee. And then you need to achieve a, the precise correction, and that's difficult to do because, again, you have to use a lot of uh, x-ray. At the moment, what tends to happen is that you have a stabilizing plate, which is one size fits all. 
And around the knee, you have soft tissues which can interact with the plate and tendons that can interact with the plate, giving rise to soft tissue irritation. And this is typically a long process, about two hours. So what we've been working on is a way of getting rid of all of those problems and coming up with a customized solution. So what we've been working on here is a personalized surgical plan to try and get precise correction. We use modern 3D metal printing technology to be able to viably make an individual plate for an individual person. We don't need any radiology, and we're aiming to cut the surgery time to 30 minutes. And this should reduce the inventory greatly. So what we're trying to do, and we're at very, very early stages, so we're just at, trying to, at the stage of getting permission to do a trial, and it could be a couple of years away. So we want to change this high tibial osteotomy from a loss-making to a profitable operation, but it has the advantage of preserving your own knee. So what we think is that these are the kinds of costs that the patients who are suitable for this procedure, which we call TOCA, um, it's about, we're currently spending almost 90 million in treating these patients. We believe if we could convert them, we could save the NHS two-thirds of that cost. So what we're looking to try and do is to get this um, procedure so that we can get it in. It's suitable, we think, for 9% of knee replacement patients. We could reduce costs by 60 million a year and also, more importantly, reduce the future revision burden. The other thing I talked to you about was this treatment gap. And if we only treated 1%, 0.1%, sorry, of that treatment gap, we could treat about 3,000 individuals. And that would also then save the UK economy about 30 million a year. You have to take these figures with a little bit of salt because they're very general figures. But we're seriously, we'd like to try and do this, and that's what we're trying to do. The interesting thing about high tibial osteotomy is that there's some very recent data that suggests if you correct the deformity, the knee has capacity to heal itself, which goes against the general dogma. It's generally thought that adult cartilage can't regenerate. In this study, this, was came, this came out of Germany in 2012, found that there was partial restoration of the damaged cartilage. Second study, which was published in 2014, again, they saw newly regenerated cartilage. And all they've done is they've corrected the mechanical deformity. So part of that, the, the, the biology is much more robust. So just quickly talking a little bit about hip fracture. The second most single expensive condition treated by the NHS after stroke. So we spend two billion pounds a year treating hip fracture. And hip fracture's pretty bad. Uh, almost 10% of people who get a hip fracture will be dead within 30, years, uh, 30 days. And in a year, a third will have died. So it's quite a serious insult. And those people who go on to survive end up going back to hospital quite a lot. Um, so this readmission rate is 0.9 of patients will be readmitted within a year. And a lot of those admissions will be emergency admissions. That results in each one of those admissions, on average, 18 bed days per patient. And this is where the expense comes in to the NHS. These bed days are very expensive. And when we look at where hip fracture occurs, you see the peak is in this 85 to 89-year-old cohort. 
And if you remember the National Office for Statistics, that's our fastest growing demographic. So we're going to have many more hip fractures. So at the moment, we're about 70,000 hip fractures per year. And that's predicted to increase to over 100,000 by 2025. So our costs are going up. So what we're interested in doing is seeing what can we do to reduce the readmission rate. And one of the things that we're targeting, if we can reduce the readmission rate just by 2%, that would save over a million pounds a year. Just a small change, just because the numbers are so huge. So one of the things that we've been doing quite a lot of work on is looking at optimal fixation of uh, hip fractures. These types of devices are put in to stabilize fractures. And we're trying to understand more about the nature of the bone to put it into. So not, instead of just having one type of treatment, what we can do to, to tailor the treatment to an individual. A research project that's just about to start uh, with funding from Arthritis for Arthroplasty Charity is uh, really using the application of mathematics to image processing to improve the diagnosis and classification of uh, hip fracture. It's a project called Archie and it's just starting. Well, I just wanted to tell you the other thing that is really important about musculoskeletal health is activity. And so uh, there's a lot of, uh, you may have heard a lot about this, but sitting is the most dangerous thing you can do now. So uh, sitting increases the risk of death to 40%, okay? Does all these horrible things. So the phrase that's become very popular now, so sitting is the new smoking. And you see all these things that happen. So you have your electrical activity in your legs switch off, your calorie drop burning drops right down, uh, enzymes go down, the risk of cancer goes up, it's terrible, okay? So activity is required. But there's a real serious message in that. If we want to try and deal with the fact that we have an aging population, we've got to try and encourage people to be more active as they go on. This is uh, data from a study, massive number of patients, uh, subjects involved. It's actually nine studies combined together. And what they did was they looked at uh, residents in care homes and they measured how they walked. And this was over a 10-year period. And they were able to calculate the 10-year survival, which was related to the speed that these individuals walked at. And the remarkable thing is the faster you walk, the greater your survival. So people who walk at more than 1.4 meters per second, uh, at 10 years, nearly 90% of those people survive the 10 years. If you walk slowly, uh, the the survival drops down to less than 60%. Remarkable. And this, as your age increases, when you look at the 85-year-olds, if you walk less than one meter per second in terms of speed, there's a massive drop-off in terms of the survival rate. And that, it's not necessarily that walking is what does it. It's just that walking is an indicator of overall activity and physical health. And being able to walk quickly indicates that you're you're maintaining your musculoskeletal system. And part of what happens as you get older is that your muscles atrophy and you get age-related sarcopenia. This is a cross-section using an MRI of someone's leg age 25 and age 63. You can see the amount of muscle loss that has occurred uh, as a consequence of aging. And the more that you can do in terms of activity, you can keep those muscles, uh, keep those muscles strong. 
And that's what we need to be able to make sure that our musculoskeletal health increases. Now, the big problem that we have is that we're in an era where budgets are being squeezed. We all love George. George was there slashing away at budgets left, right and centre. And we're still living with his legacy. So this area of musculoskeletal health actually received very little attention because it doesn't pop up on most people's radar. Very concerned about cancer, and so you should be. And there's probably over-concern about cardiac. So what I did was I looked at, this is the Medical Research Council, which is our main council for funding things in the health area. And what they do is they publish the number of grants in a particular area. So in the neurological field, uh, over 531 grants around the neurological field. My colleagues who are orthopaedic surgeons always moan about their neurological colleagues. They don't want to treat anybody. They just want to look at all the different things that are going on. Cardiovascular, uh, about half that number. Musculoskeletal, 85. We're not doing very well, are we? So the other thing that we get funding from is not just from government bodies. We get funding from the charities. And if you go onto the Charities Commission database uh, on their website, they list the incomes of all the top 50 charities. So the top 50, the top um, medical charity is Cancer Research, and they've got an annual income of about 650 million. That's pretty good. British Heart Foundation doesn't do too badly, 300 million. Age UK comes in just under um, 170 million, but Age UK don't fund research specifically into musculoskeletal conditions. That is Arthritis Research UK. And they're at 40 million. And the other charity that gives money for this type of research is Orthopaedic Research UK. And they're at 17 million. Okay. So actually, when you look at it, heart disease is not the big problem. The big problem is musculoskeletal disease. And we need to change mindsets. So, challenges. The understanding this disease and treating musculoskeletal uh, conditions needs a multidisciplinary approach. That's already a challenge because it's very difficult to get the right people to talk to each other and able to be able to do something meaningful. And the funding environment, mostly thanks to George, is becoming increasingly difficult. Well, not just, I'm blaming George. It wasn't, it wasn't blamed for everything. Okay. And it's quite clear when you look at the projections, we can't can maintain the way that we're providing healthcare services. Something has to change. It's impossible. And the other thing that we are very good at doing is we've created this system and we've exported it. We've exported this problem to other countries because they're following our healthcare models and they're going to run into the same problems and we are painfully aware of how difficult it is to fund all of this. We need to do better. And what we need is cost-effective solutions which apply to that particular patient. One size fits all does not work. So the key message, musculoskeletal health changes are huge. Another important tip of the day, keeping active is vital. So keep moving. Now, people say it doesn't matter how slowly you go as long as you keep moving. But actually it does. So you've got to keep moving and keep moving with enough speed. We saw that data from that US study. Sitting is the new smoking. 
And we also need to ensure that there's funding for musculoskeletal health research. So if there's one thing you can do, you can lobby your MP and say, young man, he is a young man in, in Bath, please make sure that we have more funding for musculoskeletal health. And with that, I thank you. <laughs>